Welcome back to Brooklyn's and this edition of The Track. My name's Tim Morris. Today, Steve McCarthy looks back at the Brooklyn's physician and local GP, Dr. Eric Gardner, and in particular how he came to design the safety crash helmet or skid lid. But first, I visited the museum to meet some of the stars of the recent TV show, Secrets of the Transport Museum. You may have seen Secrets of the Transport Museum, which has been running on Yesterday Channel. Been two series of that so far, and uh, we're back at Brooklyn's where it all happened. And uh, during the Easter holidays, every Thursday, there was an opportunity to meet the stars of that show. And we're down on the finishing straight now, and we're going to meet some of them. It's pretty busy down here in the Easter holidays, lots of uh, families and youngsters around. The car rides team are going up and down Test Hill and around the banking. And some of the uh, vehicles that were seen in the series are now starting to make their way out to the uh, finishing straight. Okay, we're down uh, at the bottom of the finishing straight and there's a couple of aircraft down here. Uh, aircraft is a loose term, bits of wood and string and bits of paper. Uh, creations of Julian Albert, who is one of the stars of the Secrets of the Transport Museum. And we've got Julian with us today. Hi there, Julian. What are you up to today? Well, I'm trying to get the planes ready. They haven't run for a long time, and so I'm making sure that the engines are primed and oiled and everything else. And hopefully they will be up and firing in a few minutes. We're looking forward to that. It should be quite noisy. Um, yes, it should be a bit noisy, but not as noisy as some of the motorbikes, as it so happens, you know. Uh, but yes, it will be quite, um, quite a different scene, really, something different and, uh, and unique in some ways, you know. And we heard some of those. Um, you're one of the stars of the Secrets of the Transport Museum. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, um, I don't know about being a star, to be honest with you. I, in my opinion... Um, I did everything for the museum because I think I, I love this place. I've been a volunteer since '96, and um, but uh, I I'd rather be Mr. Nobody. I don't want to be famous. Honestly, I don't want to be known. And so, if anything, it's the only downside of the whole thing. Having said that, I have to say that they were very well made, and I cannot deny that what you see through and through is me. Uh, nothing was pre-planned or pre-set or orchestrated or anything. All the jokes and whatever questions I ask about the weight of poor Diamond Griffiths, it, it's all what happened as it happened. And I think that made it very nice and genuine. And the, um, the conclusion was absolutely wonderful to actually see that ladybird in the air. It was an amazing experience. Amazing experience. It was a very good episode, that one. Um look quite scary trying to get it up in the air yes uh, my friends said to me uh, I knew that you were crazy but I didn't realize how crazy you were and for me um, I don't see it that way I, I just had a feel that you know this is going to be fine and I, I cannot see what could go wrong really but looking at it, it it is quite daring and it is quite crazy and you know there's a very fine line between daring and stupidity so um, I don't know on which side of that line I am, you know. <laughs> Either side, I guess, really. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're looking forward to these engines running this morning. Um, did these feature in the show at all? Um, well, this, I bit, there's a video of this aircraft in YouTube called White Monoplane Taking Off possibly and you will see a will off the ground at about a, by, by about an inch and in the first episode 
they showed this as part of the background of the sort of things that I've done. But the engine run with run really was the sports white, which uh, which is in the which is still in the museum, and uh, and the engines in the I may fit the engine for next week, so maybe maybe next week we will run that. And the demoiselle obviously is quite iconic, and it's the very first aeroplane I built, and it's that that gave me the impetus to actually get into aviation. Great, thank you, then uh, Julian. We're looking forward to the engines running. Thank you. Cheers. Well, some of the uh, cars are now assembling and we're going to try and find uh, someone else that was in the show and talk to them. And now we've got the BOAC bus here uh, which featured in one of the episodes. I believe they were having trouble with the brakes. Hi there Les. Hello. Yeah, not too bad. I'm doing a little bit on secrets of the Transport Museum. And I understand that the BOAC bus was in one of the episodes. Can you tell us a bit about what happened with it? Um, basically, I think they um, sorted the brakes out on it. I wasn't involved with it at all. Uh, I think I saw you on screen, though. Did you? You sure? I don't think it was me. <laughs> it was someone else in person. Somebody else, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the uh, front wheel cylinders had uh, seized up, so they had to get them refurbed. So uh, as far as that's all I can tell you about, I don't really know the rest of it. Have you actually watched the series? Um, yeah, now and again. <laughs> Only the bits with me in. <laughs> yeah, it's all motorbikes this time. There were quite a few motorbikes in it, weren't there? But they did concentrate on this old girl for a while, uh, getting the old brakes running and the actual vehicle running as well. It's going all right now, I take it. Yeah, yeah it's had a new fuel pump fitted on it. So uh, that certainly made a difference. So we're looking forward to today and showing the the old bus out on the finishing straight here. Stretching her legs. <laughs> Be all of 10 miles an hour. Yeah, about that. Not much faster. Lovely, thank you, Les. Okay, we're now up uh, with a lovely looking Triumph Vitesse. This is the old style Triumphy Test. Uh, belongs to Dickon Armstrong, who uh, also featured in the series. So Dickon is with us now, and uh, he did feature in an episode or two of uh, Secrets of the Transport Museum. What was that experience like for you? Uh, really, really good, actually. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it was nice to be part of the television programme and uh, to, to help show what we do here at Brooklands. Um, early motoring's always been a passion of mine, um, so to, to be here at Brooklands, to be part of it and to be part of the show, it, it has been great. That's fantastic. And this vehicle we're standing beside was um, featured in it? Uh, yes, indeed it was. Um, yeah, this is uh, our 1936 uh, Triumph Vitesse, um, Six Light Saloon. Um, it's um, it's actually a, quite a rare car. Um, it's one of only three of this model that exist. Um, it's the only, only one on the road in this country. The other one's in Austria and the other one's in pieces. Um, it actually, when it was brand new, lived only six miles down the road from Brooklands um, and it lived there until the 1950s. It then moved around the country. Um, we purchased it about 10 years ago. Um, have done, done quite a lot of work to it. Um, and it actually performs very well. It, it keeps up with modern traffic nicely um, and it actually performs better than it may have come over on the programme. <laughs> I think it came over very well on that. Um, are we looking forward to a third series, do you think? Oh, I do hope so, yes. I think there's, there's lots of uh, good ideas going around for the next series, so I really hope, I hope they do uh, go ahead with that. Um, it'd be nice to be part of it again. 
It would indeed. Thank you, Dan. Okay, we're walking back down and we found Chris Bound, who's, uh, who was sitting in a rather nice-looking Bentley. Uh, he featured in the show, but he was with a different sort of vehicle. Hi there, Chris. I'm very good, yeah, we're having a bit of fun today. We've, uh, we've got as much as we can get out as we possibly can. Um, we seem to have uh, hit a sweet spot with what's running, so uh, nearly, nearly everything is running today. So, um, and we've got, we've got some fuel as well, so uh, we should be able to have... Be able well, that's to always good. And today you're actually driving this Bentley. I, I've got the, uh, the Le Mans Bentley, which is uh, always a joy to drive. Um, it's an uh, uh, absolute arch- archetypal British sports car, uh, this particular one's uh, got fantastic history, driven by uh, Tim Birkin back in the day, um, and um, uh, you know it's 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 one of those cars that's uh, been been known throughout. It's it's never been a basket case. It's never been restored, um, and uh, it's it's pretty much original. So uh, really, really joy to joy to drive this one. And uh, in the secrets of the transport museum series, you're actually with the fire tender. Yes, which I believe is at the end of the row here. Yep. Yeah. So we've we've um, we've had a bit of trouble uh, with the, getting that running now. Uh, even even after work I did. Um, it, it it just sort of sat idle for so many months and the fuel went stale. Uh, but we've uh, we've managed to get it going and uh, hopefully it will perform okay today. And uh, did you enjoy the experience of being filmed for the television? I, I, it's, it's, it's always a bit traumatic being filmed because you, you never know what's going to end up uh, being shown. You know, obviously, you know what's been filmed and you don't know what's going to st- survive and what's going to be cut. But uh, uh, I think the end result was pretty good. I'm, I'm still getting used to the sound of my own voice, which is uh, I, can, I can cope with what I look like. But uh, hearing my own voice uh, on TV seems a bit strange, but still, still, getting, still getting used to that. Well, this is just voice only. This is for the radio on Brooklyn's radio. Yes, yes. So, so uh, I don't need to, need to worry about what I look like today, which is a, a good thing, but uh, hopefully sounding okay as well. Great. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. We're down the bottom of the finishing straight now, and people are preparing to go out in their vehicles. And I'm with Julian Grimwade, who has uh, featured in the show quite a lot, I guess. Yeah, I've been in two or three episodes. It's been fun. Two or three, more than that. You're in every episode at the beginning. I'm in the trailers, that's why. (laughs) What was the experience of being on the television show like for you? It was fun. I mean, I I knew about video because I used to make commercial videos as part of my income. So I know how the process works. So that wasn't a struggle or anything. And the crews were really nice. They were good fun. And it does get a bit tedious sometimes when you do things time and time again for whatever reason something's not right or you fluff your words but generally it was a a really good laugh and i enjoyed it surely the show was all spontaneous wasn't it yeah it was mostly spontaneous there's the odd bit that had to be obviously organized in advance but uh no it was it was mostly just make it up as you go along which is the best way to do it really so your car uh the fraser nash i think it was featured in at least one episode it was mainly in episode one, series one. That was its big feature when we went and raced at Mallory. And they saw me preparing it and sorting out chains and boiling chains in oil. That was people's favourite bits. Um, and that was quite quite intensive. That, that actually took about three or four days to film all of that. So, of course, you can only get little bits in certain venues. So that took a bit longer than most of them. Um, but that was, I enjoyed doing that one a lot because we got to go racing and come into the workshop and come here and that no, was great. 
Right, I believe you did a, a bit of work with Sarah Crabtree in the Classic Car Show. Yeah, that was a surprise. I, funny, I have met Sarah before, and I came here, and uh, Steve Clark, who was organising the day, announced, or one of the organisers of the day, announced that I was judging the car show with Sarah Crabtree. So Sarah and I just basically walked around giggling all day. Absolutely fabulous fun. I should think most of what they shot was unusable, but uh, they seemed to get something out of it in the end, so it worked out all right. Yeah, you did appear uh, quite a lot in that episode. Yeah, well, you were in it as well. I Well, yeah, I did appear very briefly. You gave out the prizes, the important bit. The trouble was there was so much on that day. There were so many classes, so many judges and all the rest that you couldn't possibly cover it all. So there were a few people said, well, that should have won and that should have won. Well, they did win other prizes. So it was difficult to portray it in, in the time allowed, really. But it was fun. I think overall it was a, a great experience for people taking part and for the museum as a whole. Yeah, well, it's undoubtedly been good for the museum. I mean, the attendance figures last year were seriously up because of it, I think. This year, maybe not so much because people are out, out and about a bit more. But uh, I... I I guess with the repeats it'll go on, it'll continue to do good for some time to come yet, so hopefully. Yep, thank you very much Julian. Uh, it's going to start to get a bit noisy down here now, we've got the Napier rail turners fired up and uh, we're probably going to get some of Julian's aircraft going shortly as well, so uh, we'll sign off from Brooklands and the secrets of the Transport Museum. Live events have started at Brooklands again and that includes uh, live music on quite a few of them and we heard their Bebop Boulevard with Lucille uh, who featured at the recent Easter gathering. Now on to Steve McCarthy who tells us all about the amazing Dr. Garb. Uh, I'm sure most of you know 
who Hugh and Ethel Lockking are. They're the people who, him in particular, he uh, owned uh, a huge amount of land. He inherited it from his father. It was all largely put together by his grandfather. Uh, but if you drove up from Byfleet, up what is now Brooklands Road, um, and into Weybridge, what I generally say is he owned everything on the left-hand side of the road, virtually, apart from the bits of the heath. And, uh, and you went into Weybridge and he owned all of Portmore Park, everything going up to the way and everything. And, of course, he, he sold it off over the years. Um, somehow or other, Eric Gardner got very close to them very quickly. And, and I suspect it must have been because he was developing this reputation. He was the guy, he was the doctor who was dealing with uh, a lot of these accident victims. He must have known them that well because his granddaughter told me that her father, John Soane's gardener, Ethel was his godmother. Well, he, he, he was only born in 1908. Eric Gardner only arrived here in 1906, so he <laughs> must have got to know them incredibly well. And um, I'm pretty certain Eric certainly was the, at least Hugh's personal physician. Uh, and it's very clear, um, it was reported when Hugh Lock King died in 1926, that you know, Dr. Gardner was present as his doctor. So, um, some of the things that um, he was dealing with in prior to the World War I in, in relation to Brooklands, one of the things his son said is that after the World War I, he was given the absolute power to stop any driver racing. And uh, I, I imagine that might be something which is current these days, but he, he was obviously perceived as somebody who could really judge people. You know, and, and I, I imagine that at race meetings, if stewards or anything thought you know, somebody was drunk or you know, not quite there or you know, had had a bit of a, an accident and was a bit woozy or something, you know, he, he had the right to just stop, stop them completely uh, taking part anymore. But the big thing uh, we're working up to is, is head injuries and concussion because this was the big thing that he, he was seeing. And of course, there were no helmets worn then. And, um, but also, he came across, of course, flying accidents. Um, you know, people started uh, falling to the ground uh, in aeroplanes. But um, th this bit is kind of new because I'm grateful to Andrew Lewis, the museum, and we had to comb through a lot of things to try and understand what was a medical officer um, because it wasn't really very obvious to a lot of people, but it's very clear from all the programs that the medical officer was a track official and um, a, who was, uh, a, if you like, appointed by the race operator. As soon as Brooklands was formed, a, a club, the Brooklands Automobile, Automobile Racing Club was formed, and they operated largely the racing on behalf of Brooklands Weybridge Limited, which was the company that the Lock Kings owned. Uh, and obviously they got the, a lot of the proceeds, presumably, in terms of the entry money and all that. Uh, but there were other race operators as well. So there's a whole series of clubs. Um, and if, when you look at all the programs, they all say who the, um, the medical officer was. So there's British Motorcycle Racing Club, the Cycle Car Club, which eventually became the Junior Car Club, and then there was a British Racing Drivers Club. 
and uh, his name features as medical officer on, on all of them, basically. And I think the, you know, the reality is that uh, the medical officer was the person who had to be there and pass judgment on, on things. But of course, normally, it wouldn't be the doctor who would then go on and treat people. But in his case, he was the doctor who was doing most of the treatment of, of the people because they were just taken down to the cottage hospital. But there was, um, what we've discovered is that there were, in fact, a number of medical officers. The first one we could find was in 1909. And then there was a guy who did it for three years. And then it was Gardner, and he uh, did it until 1936. So he was by far the longest serving. And then eventually his colleague, when he did retire from general practice, he decided obviously not to be the medical officer here anymore. And uh, his, his colleague in his practice took over, Dr. Whitehurst. But he personally was a member of, he's listed there as a member of the uh, uh, BARC, right from 1911, right through to the demise of, of the track. And with the Junior Car Club, he's listed as the chief medical officer. And I think the thinking was there that they operated a lot of long distance races, like 200 mile races. And um, he would have had, and we'll come on to it, but people like Sam Beer would come along on race days as well and uh, help out. And, and one of the things I should say is that um, it wasn't just race days, it wasn't just Saturdays. There was people using the track during the week because one of the whole things about Brooklands was it was about giving manufacturers and people a place to uh, try out their machines and test them. And uh, so there were plenty of people coming off motorbikes during the middle of the week, <laughs> not just on, on race days. But uh, the first thing you, you find out, sort of written about, um, were about flying accidents. So um, May 1912, uh, Flight Magazine reported about this accident of a Flanders, Flanders F three monoplane where the uh, the pilot and the passenger were killed and um, they reported that Dr Gardner gave this medical report because there was an inquest held in Weybridge and uh, it was him who reported. Um, it must have been uh, at some sort of event or it must have been at the weekend because there were 200 people they reckon there who saw the crash. And what was very significant about this, it's not connected to Gardner, but this is the very first air accident that was investigated and it's the start of um, air accident investigations in the whole world and that was all because three months before the Royal Aero Club had set up this committee to look at things. Um, so they, you know, it became routine and of course as we all know any, any aircraft crashes there's an investigation these days. Um, one of the things that we, we got out of the archive was um, uh, this is a September 1924 Brooklyn's Gazette, uh, which mentions that three or four years before the war, a number of autocycle union officials headed by Dr. Gardner started investigating head injuries. So uh, most of these motorcycle riders at Brooklyn's, um, yeah, it's uh, his nice leather helmet here. Um, and of course it didn't really do anything at all if you came off the bike. And what Gardner realised is that, um, and, and this could only have been through actually seeing multiple uh, instances of this, is that um, 
the, the, the rider coming off would follow a trajectory, which is a parabolic curve, basically, and would hit the track. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is, A, you, you could smash your head so badly, obviously it crushed the skull and things. Um, but if that didn't happen, if there was in any way the head started moving at a different velocity than the body, that almost certainly meant the head would go back and break the neck. And that means total paralysis or death. And he had seen um, a lot of these um, motorcycle riders coming into his hospital um, with concussion uh, by hit, from hitting the head. And they stayed in, in the cottage hospital for weeks and some of them months. And actually quite a lot of them recovered. And quite interestingly, we could only find that there was ever three motorcycle fatalities at uh, Brooklyn's in all those years it operated. You know, I kind of tried to give the impression how the, these injuries must have been so unusual for a village cottage hospital to oversee. You know, the speed limit was only 20 miles an hour, whereas around here you could be going around 100 miles an hour. And his son said he was seeing, he was seeing motorcycle injuries every two weeks, uh, which is quite a lot. Um, and the work they obviously did, he was put on to a guy called Mr. Moss of Bethnal Green. Well, it turned out Mr. Moss was the guy who made, uh, well, a big manufacturer of police helmets. And, of course, police helmets are extremely hard helmets, and, but relatively light. And the, the spec was basically about, it had to be stiff enough to withstand a very heavy blow and smooth enough to glance off a, a surface and shouldn't have any projections, which means no visors or badges or anything like that. Uh, so that basically the head could just sort of roll along. And that paper I showed from the Gazette there, that's, that's the only thing I've come across which diagrammatically shows a kind of cutaway of uh, the helmet there. Now, um, this is from 1924, and that's got a visor. I'm pretty certain he, well, it says it's detachable. <laughs> But uh, he certainly wouldn't have approved of that at all. But you can see the principle here that um, you had this very, very hard shell. And, of course, it's almost conical. Well, you know, it's, it's like an egg, isn't it? And uh, you had a very t tight lacing. So it's, there's a, a leather inner and all linked to the strap and going on the chin. So it was very, very tight on the head, basically. Um. And um, it was only after World War I they became compulsory. Um, all, racing, all motorcycle racing had to, had to wear a helmet after 1920. And uh, Gardner says that um, 16 years afterwards he only had two hospital cases, which is incredible since he was seeing two a week beforehand. Um, and they became known, and if you're of a certain age, certainly I am, uh, people used to refer to helmets as skid lids. And it was because he realised you wanted the head to skid along. Um, and almost certainly, from the way the comment was made by his son in his biography, um, they probably wished he patented it so that... <laughs> He'd got something out of it, but I, I'm pretty certain he wasn't interested in monetary uh, wealth or anything. Brooklyn's News. 
Now we heard from the stars earlier uh, but Secrets of the Transport Museum has finished its second series on Yesterday Channel um, but you can still catch up with both series on the UK TV Play catch-up service. Look out for a special occasion on May the 17th when Malcolm Campbell's Sunbeam 350 will be visiting from Bewley, particularly to run on the railway straight beside a steam train on the main line. It should be an amazing sight. Members talks continue on the 19th uh, with a Saharan motorcycle adventure. And look out too for the return of Steve Parrish, who's bringing Charlie Borman with him in August. Also in May on the 29th, look out for the Mopar Muscle Association, bringing plenty of American vehicles onto the museum site. As always, uh, do check the museum website at brookensmuseum.com for all the details of all the events, including the members' events, and how to book for them. Thanks for listening. 